And Father, <clears throat> we thank you not only for saving grace, which saves our souls from eternal separation from you when we invite the Lord Jesus Christ to come into our hearts as our Lord and Savior, but we also thank you, Father, for transforming grace, which allows us the privilege of being transformed into the very likeness of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the strong hand of the living Christ, which reaches down to give shape to our shapeless lives and which binds up and heals the brokenhearted, which gives strength once again to the faltering step. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the ever-present fountain from which grace for our lives continues to flow. Now, I just pray, Lord, that um, you, the gentle shepherd, would teach us from your word, for we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, two genealogies, one found in the book of Matthew, the other one found in the book of Luke. We already talked about in a past lesson why there are no genealogical records for the Lord Jesus Christ found in John. Who needs a genealogy for the Son of God? Because God had no beginning, and there is no genealogy found in the book of Mark because there he's presented as a servant, and you don't care about the genealogy of a servant. You just care about what he can do. So we're going to be looking, first of all, at the genealogy which is found in Matthew, and I am not going to read through all those names. What I am going to do is just read a few selected verses. I'll tell you what they are. So start with verses 1 and 2. I will read those. It says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. It doesn't say and, but the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas, or Judah, and his brethren. In other words, the 12 tribes of Israel. Then if you will move down to verse 6, it says, And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Now, what was her name? Bathsheba. Okay, move down to verse 11. And Josias begat Jeconias. Now, you might want to circle that man's name, Jeconias. And his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. That was the time of the Babylonian captivity. There was a king on the throne named Jeconias. Okay, move down to verse 16. It says, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. If you count, you'll see 14 generations from Abraham to David. And then if you count from David until the carrying away into Babylon are another 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon, into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Okay, an important concern... For Jewish people, Matthew wrote with Jewish readers in mind, remember? So an important concern any Jewish person should have with regard to someone claiming to be God's promised Messiah would be, did this person uh, descend from Abraham, the father of the Jews? That would be very important because of God's promise to Abraham, which was known as the Abrahamic covenant. That's found in Genesis especially in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, no would-be Messiah, someone who's saying, I am the Messiah, and there have been plenty of them down through the generations, false messiahs. No would-be Messiah should be able to even begin to convince the Jewish people <clears throat> of his legitimacy 
unless he can prove that his ancestry goes back to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant was not only God's promise to Abraham concerning the extent of the land, you know, that it would go from the river of Egypt all the way to um, the Euphrates River, but it was also God's promise concerning the future Messiah, the Savior, the, the seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head, uh, the one who would conquer sin and death. The Lord God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, that he would... Um, that, that from his physical descendants would come one who would bless not only the Jewish people, but he said all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. And Abraham knew, he understood that the Lord God was speaking of the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, the Redeemer. Knowing the importance of the Messiah's ancestry, you know, that it was very important that he could prove that he went on back not only to Abraham, but also to King David. Matthew, therefore, began his genealogical record of the Lord Jesus Christ with a very significant mention of not only Abraham, but who did he even put first in verse 1? He mentioned David first. We talked about this in our first lesson. Even though David didn't come first, he mentioned David first because throughout the book of Matthew... He is presenting Jesus as the king, the one who would sit on the, the throne of, of Israel. He would be the son of David, and he would sit there for how long? Forever. It says in, um, I believe it's in Samuel somewhere, Second Samuel, there's the, what we call the Davidic covenant. I'll get to that later and tell you the exact verse. It's in your notes somewhere. But that the son of David would sit upon the throne of Israel not just for a short time, but he would sit there forever. So you see, Matthew understood that immediately he needed to demonstrate to his Jewish readers that Christ, Jesus Christ, met the requirements or the qualifications for both the Abrahamic covenant, that he was of the line of Abraham, and the Davidic covenant, that he did descend from King David. So you see, in the very first verse of the New Testament, we have this beautiful link to the Old Testament. You know, and this is something to point out to Jewish people. It's not something altogether brand new. It's an immediate link. Everything in the New Testament links back to the Old Testament. Okay, now of particular interest, and I pointed this out when we read verse 11, is the inclusion of a, a man who was a king named Jeconias. His name is spelled other ways. Also in the Old Testament, you might find it as Coniah or Jehoiakim or Jeconiah, but here we find it spelled Jeconias. Jeconias was a king who had been ruling the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember when Israel was divided into two kingdoms? There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and then you had the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, he was a king of the southern kingdom of Judah for only something like three months when King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came over to, to Judah and took the Jews as captives. That's what is known as the Babylonian captivity. Well, in the book of Jeremiah, we find a very interesting curse from God himself on this king on King Jeconias, and there's reason for the curse, but I won't get into all that. But here's what the curse says. It's in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Thus saith the Lord, now Jeremiah is speaking for God, and he's talking to Jeconiah. He says, Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless. Now, King Jeconiah was not childless. 
It tells us in Second or First Chronicles that he had seven sons. But the curse says, write him as though he were childless, okay? It says, so write him as if he were childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed, in other words, all of his descendants, no man of his descendants shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now, you might never have heard of King Jeconias before in your whole life, but he's in the Bible, and this is a very important curse that God made upon this man due to the fact that Jeconiah was in the Lord Jesus Christ's ancestral line. In other words, he was one of Christ's ancestors. It would appear, because of this curse, that Jesus Christ was ineligible. He didn't qualify to sit on the throne of David. The divine curse specifically states that no one of King Jeconiah's descendants, none of his future sons or grandsons or great-grandsons, could ever sit, occupy and sit and rule from the throne of David. Now that's a problem because Jesus Christ comes from his lineage. Now here's part of the solution. Although Jeconiah's descendants could never occupy or rule from the throne of Israel, the line of kingship still did pass through them. They still were in the line of the rightful king, but they could not actually take the throne and rule over Israel. But rulership, you understand, still passed on through them. So Jesus Christ still inherited the legal right to sit upon David's throne, although ever since the time of this man, King Jeconias, ever since that time, do you know, and this is a fact, no rightful Jewish king has ever sat on the throne of Israel. When God says something, he means it. Since the Jews were carried off into captivity, King Jeconias was the last king to sit on Israel's throne. Then they were carried off into captivity. When they came back 70 years later, they never had a king again. To this day, they have never had a king, a rightful king. We'll talk about there were some kings, but they weren't rightful kings. They have never had the, the king that should, you know, have come rightfully from King David. And that's very interesting to know. So here we have a problem. Uh, how could Jesus be the prophetic fulfillment of the Davidic covenant which promised a Messiah king who would reign forever, sit upon Israel's throne forever? How could he be that uh, fulfillment if he was unable, because of this Jeconian curse, to actually occupy the throne of Israel? Well, the answer lies in the fact that Jesus was not a bloodline physical descendant of Jeconiah. The, the genealogical account which is presented for us in Matthew, which traces the Lord, Lord Jesus' ancestry from Abraham to David and then to Solomon. Let's see, you see Solomon's name in verse 6. <clears throat> and then on down through verse 11 through King Jeconiah. That is the record of the ancestry through the Lord's stepfather, 
Joseph. Now, although Joseph was the Lord's legal father, yet he was not his physical bloodline father, right? Who was his bloodline father? Well, he didn't have blood, but who was his real father? God. He was um, conceived by God, the Holy Spirit. He did not have a physical father. He was virgin born. So <clears throat> from Joseph, Jesus inherited the legal right to Israel's throne. If there had been a rightful king in Israel at that time of Jesus, it, it would have been his father Joseph, or it could, it could have been. He had he had all the right lineage, but he couldn't sit on the throne because he did physically descend from Jeconiah. However, um, so from his father, he did inherit the legal right to sit on Israel's throne. But because the Lord Jesus was not a bloodline descendant of Joseph, he circumvented the curse of Jeconiah's physical offspring. Now, as wonderful as all of this sounds, like you say, oh, wow, whew, glad of that. As wonderful as that sounds, we still have a problem because the Davidic covenant still states that Israel's eternal Davidic king would actually be from the physical um, seed, you know, the direct bloodline of King David. God promised David that from his seed would come the, the one who would sit on Israel's throne forever, speaking of the Messiah. So you see, we still have a problem. So this means that the Messiah would not only inherit the legal right to David's throne, but he would be a true physical descendant of David as well. So now do you understand why it is so very important that the Holy Spirit also inspired Luke to record for us? an ancestral record of the Lord Jesus. Because what do we get in Luke? We get the ancestral record of his mother, Mary. And guess what? She also descends from David. So let's look, if you'll move over to Luke chapter 3. <clears throat> Luke chapter 3. It's interesting, and one of the differences is that uh, Matthew, because he's writing to Jews, immediately he knows how important it is to show that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah so the first thing he does is put in his genealogical record to prove that he comes from Abraham and David but Luke is writing to to Greeks he's writing to Gentiles so it's not that important to them so he doesn't have the genealogy until chapter 3 he waits until Jesus is baptized and God officially proclaims him as his son and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then in chapter 3, verse 23, Luke gives the genealogical record of the Lord. So let's, again, I'm just going to pick out a few selected verses. So let's start with verse 23. It says, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. There are only two places in the Gospels which give us the Lord's age. This is one of them. We know he was 30 when he began his ministry, his public ministry. Who knows where the other places that mentions his age? Only one other place. He was 12 when he went to the temple and he was 12 years old. Okay, those are the only two places that talk about his age. All right, so he began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, those are important words, the son of Joseph. It was only supposed because the people supposed he was his son, but he wasn't really, right? All right, which was the son of Heli, or, yeah, Heli. 
Okay, move over to verse 31. I'm skipping all those complicated names. And if you go to verse 31, the end, it says, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. And then all the way down to verse 38, which says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. If you notice here, Luke does not present a descending ancestral line as Matthew did. You know, Matthew started with Abraham. Remember my chart here? It was a descent. He started with Abraham, and then he went down through David and Solomon and Jeconias, Joseph, all the way down to Jesus. What Luke does is Luke gives us an ascending uh, genealogical record, if you can see that. I know it's slipping around and can't get the whole thing up there, but... Uh, so he starts with um, he starts with the Lord. He starts with Jesus in verse 23, and then he ascends back up to Adam, the first man. And he even goes all the way to God himself in heaven, doesn't he? In verse 38. Now, why did Luke go all the way back to Adam? Well, because he was writing primarily to Gentiles. And he wanted, therefore, to stress the universal offer of salvation. Adam was the father of the entire race, you know, not just the Jews, but everybody, the Gentiles as well. So here, if if we were to take the time to closely compare the two genealogical records of, um, and you have a chart that helps you with that. I hope everybody got one when you came in. If not, we'll make sure you get one before you leave because I'm not sure how well you can see that up there. You can't see it very well at all. But um, if we were to take the time to compare these two records given in Matthew and Luke, we would find that there are many differences between the two. For example, there are 74 names included in the record in Luke's genealogy while there are only 41 names found in Matthew's account. All of these differences, however, are very easily explained. I'm going to explain some of them, but um, there are very significant reasons for some of the, cha- the differences. They are divinely significant reasons for each of the differences. One important difference is the seeming problem of the different names that you will find in the two accounts after King David. They're the same up to King David, but after King David, you'll find different names. Now, does this mean that we have an error in our Bible? Does this mean that we can throw away God's Word because it has uh, errors in it? There's mistakes, different names in the genealogies. Of course, you know the answer to that is, of course, let me put that up there, that you can hang on to your Bible forever because it is eternal. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fades, but what? But the word of God shall stand forever. Um, We don't need to throw away our Bibles. You can trust them throughout eternity. The reason that Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts contain different names after King David is because Matthew presented the genealogical record of Joseph the Lord's legal father, whereas Luke is giving to us the genealogical record of Mary, the Lord's bloodline mother. He did actually physically descend from Mary. And that ancestry is given through David's son, Nathan. 
Joseph, Joseph descended back to David through David's son Solomon, whereas Mary descended back through David through David's son Nathan. David had a lot of sons, didn't he? So there's the difference, and that's why there are different names found after King David in the two genealogical records, so it's no big deal. So with the inclusion of Luke's ancestral line for the Lord Jesus, which is given through his physical mother Mary, we discover that the Lord Jesus is also a bloodline descendant of David. Therefore, you see, the whole problem of the Jeconiah curse is solved. Jesus Christ is uniquely and perfectly qualified both legally and physically, both royally and relationally, to take the throne of David and fulfill the Davidic covenant as God's promised Messiah, the one who will one day soon, I think, come and sit on David's throne and reign there forever, not only over Israel but over the entire world. Now, in case anyone might be wondering how Matthew and Luke could have had access to the genealogical records of the Lord Jesus Christ, you probably should know, or if you don't know already, that the Jews back then were very, very meticulous. They were very serious about recording and maintaining their ancestral lines. This was necessary in order to, for one thing, to ensure a pure and a legitimate Levitical priesthood. The priests had to be able to prove that they came from the tribe of Levi. And all the Jews wanted to know which tribe they came from and where, you know, that they, how they descended back to Abraham. They were very, very concerned about all this. So re records were vitally necessary, and uh, especially in order to prove the credentials of any would-be Messiah, as we talked about. Anyone who would come along and say that they were the Messiah, they had to have the records so that they could you know, check him out and make sure that he really did come from the line of David and go all the way back to Abraham. So the ancestral records of every single Jewish person ever born were kept to date meticulously and they were carefully preserved in the temple in Jerusalem. So both Matthew and Luke, who wrote these gospel accounts before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., both of these accounts were written before 70 A.D. They had access, you see, to the temple library. They could just like we could go into a library and look up a birth record of someone. They could do that. They could go in and they could check out all anybody's Jewish ancestral records that they wanted to. And we can be sure that these two men recorded what they recorded about the Lord Jesus Christ's ancestry through both Joseph and Mary. We can be sure that it was correct because... Not only was it God-inspired, but it would have been very easy for another Jewish person, especially the Lord's enemies, to confirm or negate what they wrote. You know, the, the Jewish religious leaders of Israel at that time were the Lord's greatest enemies. They hated him. And you know that the first thing they did was run to the temple to check out his genealogical record. And if they had found any discrepancy there, they would have used that as their weapon in order to discredit him publicly. And yet, what do we find? We find throughout 
our study of Christ's life that they never say a word about his ancestry. They have they had obviously checked him out and they found that they couldn't criticize him on that account, either from his father, his supposed father, or his um, mother. He did go back to David. He was truly a Jew, a son of Abraham. Now, did you realize that all the Jewish genealogical records ever kept, all of them were destroyed in 70 AD when the temple was totally demolished by the Romans when they came in and they destroyed not only the temple, but they destroyed all of Jerusalem. So you know what that means? Do you understand the importance of what that means? That means that since 70 AD, 30 years after the Lord Jesus Christ, since 70 AD, anyone claiming to be a fulfiller of both the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, in other words, anyone coming along and claiming that he is the Messiah, simply has no way at all to be able to prove that his ancestry goes back to um, not only David, but to, to Abraham, much less to prove you know, that he goes all the way back to Adam and to God. Of course, we all know we did come from Adam, but no one has, no Jew has his um, ancestral record preserved. No, so this means that of all the Jews who have ever lived and all who ever will live, there is, oh, I should have said there's only one. There is one Jew. Of all the Jews that have ever lived, there is only one who has had his ancestral record preserved. And not just with one record, but two. What does the Bible say it takes for a proper witness? Two. So why do we have two genealogical records? Because the Bible said we need two witnesses. So we have the witness of Matthew's genealogy, and we have the witness of Luke's genealogy. Um, so there's only one messianic candidate who can absolutely positively prove that he fulfills all of the necessary genealogical requirements of the Messiah. And that single Jew is the Lord Jesus Christ. His ancestral record is preserved for all time and eternity. It will never be destroyed because it is part of the eternal word of God. Now, there have been many, many people who have come along and uh, claimed that they are the Messiah. We had, uh, we've had several in just our lifetimes, haven't we? What was that crazy guy's name? David Koresh. And there's been a, there was a, a Rabbi Menachem something or other. I can't even remember his last name. He was in... He just died about 10 years ago in New York. They thought he was the Messiah. All these different false messiahs, there's literally been hundreds of them since the time of Jesus Christ. Not a single one of them can prove that he goes back legally and, and physically to King David. Or, for that matter, really, to um, Abraham. The interesting thing is, is that many people have followed these people and haven't cared to find out that they go back like they should, you know, that they fill these credentials. Some of them haven't even been Jews. To show you, people don't understand, don't know the word of God or, or they purposely ignore it. So that's just interesting. Some other seeming con uh, contradictions which are found 
in Matthew and Luke. I just want to go over real quickly. Anytime you think there's a contradiction in the Bible, if you will just in faith trust that it can be demonstrated that it is not a contradiction, that's the best thing to do because most of them are just that, seeming contradictions. One example of a seeming contradiction is that Matthew states, and this is on your little chart, that uh, Joseph's father was Jacob. All right? That's in Matthew 1.16. Whereas Luke says that Joseph's father, and this is in Luke 3.23 if you compare them, that that Joseph's father was Heli. However, you know, even though this looks like it's an inconsistency in Scripture, it really isn't because they're both right. Matthew was correct because Joseph's father, his real bloodline father, was a man named Jacob. Did you ever ask, did you ever think about what were the names of, of Jesus' grandfathers? I mean, I, you know, if somebody had asked me that a couple of weeks ago, I would have, his grandfathers? I don't have a clue. <laughs> but Jesus had grandfathers, and one was named Jacob, and the other one was named Heli. So write that down in your little trivia book there. But uh, so Joseph's father was a man named Jacob. But Luke was also correct because he was presenting the Lord's lineage through who? Through Mary. So what he did is because Joseph wasn't truly Jesus' blood father and Jacob, Joseph's father, Jesus' grandfather, was not truly Jesus' bloodline grandfather, what Luke did is give us the name of Jacob's father-in-law. So Heli is the name of Mary's father. And the Jews often did this. It was not anything unusual. It says in one of my commentaries, quote, It is not uncommon in Scripture for a man to be called a son of another person of which there is no blood relationship. Hence, the father-in-law sonship is not unusual. Actually, what this helps prove to us is really it's, it's further proof of the virgin birth of Christ. It's proof that Joseph was not Christ's natural father um so then there's another um difference here and that is let's see and this isn't something that they would necessarily criticize but it's something interesting to point out to you and that is the continual use of the word begat over in matthew's genealogical record you see that he he uses the word begat 39 times and yet when you get to Matthew 1.16, all of a sudden there's a, a very noteworthy change. He doesn't say, Joseph begat Jesus. Instead, it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. You see here, this is very important. This is why you can trust every single little word of God's word, the scripture. If, if Matthew had stuck with using the little word begat, that one little word would have made the virgin birth of Jesus suspect. You know, if he had said, Joseph begat Jesus, that would have made the virgin birth suspect. And without the virgin birth, the Lord Jesus would be just another man born just like any other man and he would have inherited the Adamic sin nature and he would not have been able to save any one of us in this room he wouldn't even have been able to save himself so you see how that one little word begat is so important that it isn't used used throughout the whole genealogy but it isn't used in verse 16 
Now, some people have also pointed out that there are three names which are omitted in the genealogy found in Matthew. And this omission is found uh, between the names Joram, J-O-R-A-M, and Uzziah, which is spelled Ozias, and that's in Matthew 1.8. Now, you wouldn't know this unless you went back into the Old Testament and checked with the genealogy that is back there. You'd find, if you did do that and you you studied real hard, you'd say, "Uh uh-oh, we have a problem. Matthew forgot three men. He forgot Ahaziah, who was the son of Joram. He forgot uh, Joash, who was the son of Ahaziah. And he forgot Amaziah, who was the son of Joash. So the Bible critics have a good time here, and they say this was a mistake on the part of Matthew or on the part of God the Holy Spirit. However, the reason for this omission of those three names is due to the fact that they were the descendants, the next three generations of the descendants of the wicked Queen Jezebel, who was not who was not only an idolater, but she wasn't even uh, Jewish. And you remember, she married King Ahab and henpecked him and... Oh, she was just a wicked, wicked queen. Well, the Jews, he's writing to Jews. Matthew writes to Jews. They would have no problem whatsoever with Matthew eliminating to the fourth generation the children of idolaters because it tells in God's word, it's actually a suggestion in the second commandment that uh, to the fourth generation, the children of idolaters would suffer for the idolatry of their parents. And so each one of those next generations after Queen Jezebel, they all were wicked. Joash started out good, but he wound up wicked because he had the prophet Zechariah stoned to death. So they they all wound up wicked. So Matthew, writing to Jews, eliminated their names, and that is not an error. It was done on purpose by God the Holy Spirit. It's also interesting to find that the ancestors of the Lord Jesus include such a wide variety of people from all different facets of life and different ranks and different characters. His lineage, if you look at it in both these accounts, you'll find it contains patriarchs like, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, wonderful patriarchs of the faith. It contains at least 15 kings. It contains peasants like Joseph, his father, and in Mother Mary were peasants. It contains foreigners like Ruth and Rahab. It contains a list of uh, even adulterers and uh, famous people and people we never heard of before, unknown people. It has names in there of rich people. It has names of poor people, etc., etc. What does all of this tell us? It tells us that it is a person's relationship to Jesus Christ, which is what matters. That's what counts, not who or what a person is. Amen? Doesn't matter if we're rich or poor, if we're a king's daughter or a peasant's daughter. Doesn't matter if we're a foreigner or if we're a Jew. It doesn't matter. What matters is our relationship to Jesus Christ. It demonstrates to us that all men from all walks of life need to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Also, we find um, in Matthew's genealogical genealogical account of Christ, we find the inclusion of um, five women's names. 
And let's go over those five. Five, by the way, and this, this speaks of grace, the divine message of grace, especially when we consider who some of these women were. The five women mentioned in Matthew, we start with, now some of the spellings are different, but Tamar in verse 3, she, she played the prostitute with her own father-in-law, Judah, Tamar. She played the prostitute. Then there was Rahab, spelled a little different. See her name in verse 5. She was not only a foreigner, she was a Canaanite, but she was also in, she didn't just play the harlot one time. She was in the business of harlotry. She was a prostitute. And uh, you can read about her in Joshua 2.1. Then we have the name of Ruth in Matthew verse uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Ruth was a foreigner, wasn't she? And guess what? She was a Moabitess. You know where the Moabites came from? She was a descendant of Lot's. Remember Lot, the nephew of Abraham? She was a descendant of Lot's incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. And yet she is in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Then we also have, now we don't have her name, but... She's implied in the her, the wife of Urias. And who, who was she? We talked about her earlier. Bathsheba. And she committed adultery. She was an adulteress. She wasn't innocent in that whole little scene. I think she knew he was looking from that tower up there. <laughs> but her name was Bathsheba. She is in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the fifth woman is, of course, Mary. And Mary was just a poor, young peasant girl who became Christ's physical mother. The inclusion of these women in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ does not in any way condone some of their sins. Rather, what it does is it demonstrates the grace of God that sent Jesus Christ into this world through all kinds of people to emphasize the fact that he is the Savior of all who call upon him for their redemption, for their salvation, whether they have been in the business of prostitution or whether they messed up one time, you know, or whether they've been an adulteress or um, whether they're a foreigner outside of the line of blessing or whether they're just a, a godly young woman like Mary. They all need the same thing. They all needed a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, including his mother Mary. She needed, she even called Jesus her Savior. All right, so that's just, I want to make it clear. Now, there are other, there, there's a lot of spelling differences. And those can also easily be explained because the Old Testament came from Hebrew. The New Testament came from Greek. The Greeks and the Hebrews spell names differently. So that all of, any seeming difference can be easily explained. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the genealogies. I think they're very exciting when you look into them. But let's move quickly on to the first of three announcements. Next week we're going to look at the other two. But this morning, Lord willing, I wanted to at least look at the first announcement which was made to John the Baptist's father. Um, His name was Zacharias. So let's look, if you'll move over now to Luke 1. Let's go to Luke 1. Luke 1. And I am going to read verses 5 to 38. All right, let's start at Luke 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea. I thought there was no king that ever sat on the throne of Judah or Israel. We're going to talk about Herod there. Okay, there was a king, Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course 
of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he, Zacharias, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, remember his course was Abia, up in verse 5, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Wouldn't you love that said about you? Many of the children of Adam <laughs> shall she turn to the Lord their God. That's a wonderful statement about him. Verse 17, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias or Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, whereby shall I know this? For I am old, an old man and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings and behold thou shalt be dumb. What does that mean? Is he going to be stupid? No. It means he couldn't speak. You're not going to be able to speak. He says that. And not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words. Is it important to believe the words of God? It is which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned unto them, and he remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of this ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Okay, we will stop there. For 400 years, heaven had been silent. Not a word came down from, from uh, heaven since the Lord's last utterance through the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, he sealed the Old Testament. So as we come to our study now, as we look at the first of three annunciations, we're going to look at the time when heaven finally broke that long 400-period 
of absolute silence, when there was silence from heaven. This had to be hard on the Jewish people because they had been really, they had gotten spoiled hearing from God over and over again through their many prophets all the way, you know, down, from Adam all the way down. They had heard from God. And then after Malachi, 100 years went by, not a peep out of God, not one single prophet. Another 100 years, another 100 years. Can you imagine that when you've been hearing from him frequently? 400 years of silence. So this, this breaks the silence, what we just read. So uh, we're going to look at three announcements that broke that silence. The first one is the announcement to Zechariah that we just read about. Then next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the announcement which was made to Joseph, the legal stepfather of the Lord, and then the announcement made to Mary. <clears throat> now, it's interesting to notice that some of the last words, if you want to go over to Malachi, all you've got to do is move a few books to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Some of the very last words that the Jewish people had heard from God some 400 years earlier were those that we find written in Malachi 3.1, where it says the last part of that verse, look at it, it says, this is the Lord of hosts speaking. If you look at that verse, it says it's the Lord of hosts. He says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Now, that's really interesting, because who is speaking? The Lord of hosts, and he's going to send a messenger before himself. He says, before me. So who is coming to earth? He's going to send a messenger, but then who is the one who's coming to earth in fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies? God himself, the Lord of hosts. God, Jesus, there's another proof, like we talked about last week, another proof of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wanted to point that out. Uh, Luke began his account of the first in 400 years heavenly announcement. He began the account of, with this announcement by introducing his readers to the future parents of the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would be the herald of the Messiah. And you all know what his name is. What is it? John, and we call him John the Baptist, because he baptized people. All right, so he inter he breaks, God in heaven decides to break this 400 years of silence by introducing us to John the Baptist's parents. And they have some very significant names. Names in the Bible are always significant. One, his father's name is Zacharias. Now, Zacharias means, in Hebrew, the Lord remembers. See that, I guess I... I hate to do that. You have to miss the picture. But Zacharias means the Lord remembers. And Elizabeth in Hebrew means covenant promise of God. So if you put those two names together, which is what you get when you get John the Baptist, <laughs> uh, you find out a, you get a beautiful message from God. Here's the message you get. The Lord remembers his covenant promise. Interesting, isn't it? God remembered, as he always does, God never forgets, God remembered his promise given by Malachi, remember we just read that, that he would send his messenger to prepare the way before the coming of the Messiah. Actually, before his coming is what he told us. Now, in fact, God remembered all of his covenant promises that he had made throughout the whole Old Testament. He remembered his promise to Adam 
while Adam was still in the garden right after they fell and he promised Adam to send a woman's seed Genesis 3.15 the one who would come and crush Satan's head he also remembered his promise to Abraham to send one from his seed who would bless all the nations of the earth and he remembered his promise to David that his greater son would sit upon his throne and reign over his kingdom forever and now some 15 months before the birth of this one who was promised the birth of the Lord Jesus God said through the joint names of John the Baptist parents Zacharias and Elizabeth yes I remember my promises I know it's been quiet for 400 years but I haven't forgotten I remember my promises and I am about to begin fulfilling them now let's look at the setting at the time of the birth of not only John but the time of the birth of Jesus because we'll be looking at that shortly thereafter so what was it like in the world especially in Israel at or Judah at the time that Jesus was born the time that John the Baptist was born we've just talked about some significant names now we're going to look at the setting in Judah and what we're going to look at under setting is that there were four conditions going on in Israel at that time. There was a degenerate king on the throne. You see this on your outline at the beginning of the lesson. There was a degenerate king sitting on the throne. There was a debased temple. They had a defiled priesthood. And last of all, there was a deadened people. The people were spiritually dead. In Luke 1, verse 5, we are giving, given the historical time setting for this divine announcement which was made to Zacharias. And it says that it occurred during the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now that particular Herod, there were a lot of Herods back in those days, but this particular Herod is the one who was known as Herod the Great. And it's certainly he wasn't called great because of anything good, that's for sure. He was not good in God's eyes. He was anything but great in God's eyes. Herod the Great was the first king to rule in Israel since the time of the Babylonian captivity. So in other words, he's the first king to sit on the throne of Israel since Jeconias. But did he really belong there? He was there for, um, there was no king in Israel for 600 years. And now here comes Herod the Great. To the dismay of the Jews, Herod the Great was not a descendant of Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. He did not descend back to Jacob. He descended instead to Jacob's brother Esau. So you see, he wasn't even a Jew. He was an Idumean. He was an Edomite. and So he had no right to be sitting on Israel's throne. So he was a usurper. Especially did the Jews hate him and despise him because he didn't even worship Jehovah God. He worshipped all kinds of pagans and he had pagan temples built everywhere all throughout the land. And you know that that really bothered them. So they viewed him as a usurper because he was and yet they could do very little about the fact that he was sitting on their throne because he was supported by the strong arm of Rome. They kept him there. Um, 
he was further hated by the Jews because he very heavily taxed them and he took all that money and he sent it to Caesar in Rome who ensure, that ensured that he would stay on the throne in Israel. So he was really a puppet of the Roman Empire and he kept his position because he financially supported and he verbally flattered Rome, the emperor there. He even robbed the much reverenced temple of David, King David. You know how much the people loved King David. And Herod had the audacity to take all the valuables out of King David's tomb and send those to Rome. So you know how much the Jewish people must have really loved this guy. Well, not only was he a thief, but he was a murderer, a cold-hearted, horrible murderer, just like Jezebel and Athaliah, her daughter. Oh, Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. Have you ever read about her? What a wicked queen. She had all of her own sons and her grandsons murdered so she could sit on the throne. And she missed one. If she hadn't missed that one's grandson, the whole line of, of Jesus Christ would have been stopped. You know, that was always Satan's thing, to stop the Savior from ever getting here. So he was always after the lineage. But this one son named Joash was hidden as a baby in the temple by the high priest who was a godly man at that time. But can you imagine a grandmother killing all her children and her grandchildren? <laughs> Talk about wicked. Well, he's another guy. He had all of his, or not all, but he had uh, his, his last, he had some of his sons killed, but his last act before he died, and he di did die a very horrible, agonizing death, but his last act before he died was to have his son Antipater killed because he didn't want him to take over the throne. And then on his deathbed, he also issued a decree saying that all of his nobility was to be murdered at the time of his death. And the reason for that is because he wanted there to be mourners at his funeral. You see, he knew if he was the only one up there in the casket, there'd be nobody out there crying. So he had all of his nobility killed. Sick person. Someone like that is definitely satanic, right? Remember now, this is also the Herod, the same man, the Herod the Great, who had all the two-year-old male children in Bethlehem slain when he heard that the Christ had been born in Bethlehem. So you know what a wicked man he was sitting. That's the condition at the time of the birth of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. They had a degenerate king sitting on the throne. They also had a debased temple. The heavenly announcement which was made to Zacharias took place where? In the temple in Jerusalem. Now this temple, amazingly enough, had been begun by this same man, by Herod the Great. It was his attempt to try to appease some of the Jewish hatred toward him, um, you know, for having built so many pagan temples everywhere. The Jews were a people who did not put up with that kind of stuff, even under Rome. They kept having these revolts, and he didn't want think, word to get back to Caesar that he couldn't keep his people quiet, that they were always revolting, and, you know, he was having to go and slaughter them, because pretty soon Caesar would get tired of that and remove Herod from the throne. So in order to keep the Jews quiet and appeased, he had the temple built. Actually, it was Zerubbabel's temple, the temple that had been built when the Jews came back from their captivity, and they built, it was never the same as the majesty of Solomon's temple. Zerubbabel's temple was nothing like that. 
So Herod decided he would make it even better than Solomon's temple. So it actually, he spent, well, he didn't spend because he died before it was ever finished, but it took a total of 80 years to build that temple. It's the temple that we read about all throughout the Gospels. Whenever Jesus goes into the temple, it was what is known as Herod's temple that he went into. Actually, it's interesting that um, by the time John the Baptist was born, this temple had been in the building process for 16 years. By the time the Lord Jesus began his public ministry, when he was 30 years old, the temple had been, it was still in the building process. At that time, it was still in the building process for 46 years. So, you know, if you get this, it's kind of interesting. I have my Tuesday morning study at Grace Chapel, and they think they've had it bad because they've been building, working on the building there for a couple, three or four years. But uh, well, think of this. When Jesus went into the temple, they had scaffolding and all kinds. I mean, work was constantly going on there. So it took a total of, what I say, 80 years to build it. It was not completed until 64 A.D. And guess what? It was utterly destroyed six years later. All that building for nothing. <laughs> it was totally destroyed in 70 A.D. So it was only in its completed form for six years. Six is the number of man. That wasn't God's temple. That was man's temple. And uh, it's the same temple that Jesus went into twice. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And what did he have to do with it? With a whip. He had to clean it out twice, didn't he? So they had not only a debased king, but they, I mean, a degenerate king. They had a debased temple at the time of the birth of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. They also had a defiled priesthood. In the midst of an oppressed nation, which was ruled not only by the strong arm of Rome, but also by a degenerate, wicked king, and surrounded by degraded religious practices going on in an unclean temple... God still had, in the midst of all that, he still had his own servants, his own lights. Zacharias and Elizabeth were two faithful, faithful, godly servants who continued to obey his word and serve him as they waited for him to remember his covenant promises to Israel. Look at verse 6 of Luke 1. It says, you know, they had a very strong testimony in the midst of a dark day, in the midst of a degenerate time. And that's what you and I need to have too, right? We live in the midst of a degenerate, dark day. And so we need to be like Elizabeth and uh, Zacharias. It says they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. They were godly people. However, the grace of God doesn't keep anyone from trouble as even even godly people. Even Zacharias and Elizabeth had their share of troubles and trials. And their particular affliction was what? Something we found often, those of us that were studying the book of Genesis the last four years. Many people in the book of Genesis had trouble conceiving, just like Sarah and, and Rebecca and Rachel. Elizabeth was barren. And so, therefore, they didn't have any children. But instead of this making them bitter and turning away from God, it made them better. And that's what trials should do, right? They should draw us closer to God instead of driving us away from God. When the situation of Elizabeth's barrenness 
appeared to get to the point where it was humanly impossible to remedy. I mean, she was not only barren all of her childbearing days, <clears throat> but now she was past menopause. She was too old to conceive. It, God sometimes waits until things are humanly impossible, and then he really gets the glory, doesn't he? So he waited until they were both stricken in age, and then God sent Gabriel to, the, to Zacharias with a message that they would have a son. And they were to name him what? John. I named my son John. His first name is John. John means the grace of God. It's a good name. It's interesting that this very important announcement was given to Zacharias, who was merely a priest. He was not the high priest of Israel. You think a message this important after 400 years of silence would go to the high priest of Israel, but no, it was just given to a, an, an ordinary kind of low-class priest. The vast majority of Israel's priesthood, including her high priest, was at this time extremely corrupt and debased. And uh, so Israel had a defiled priesthood, and we're definitely going to see this as we study the Lord's life. We look at his earthly ministry. The priesthood of Israel had been, and I don't know how many of you might know this, it's a little detail here, but it had been very organized after the Jewish captivity in Babylon. When they returned, when the Jews returned from Babylon back to Israel, they organized their Levitical priesthood. And uh, so by the time of Zacharias, there were 20,000 priests, and they divided them into 24 courses, they called them. And that's what you read about in verse 5, where it uh, sections. You know, they took the 20,000 priests and they divided them into 24 courses or sections. And Zacharias was in the course of Abia, is the name of it. Twice a year, just twice a year, each priest, just as Zacharias is doing here in chapter 1, would take part for one week in all the sacred tasks of the temple service in Jerusalem. Now, the priests lived all over. They didn't all just live in Jerusalem. These 20,000 Levitical priests lived everywhere, all over Israel. But twice a week, I mean twice a year, excuse me, each of those priests would go for one week to serve in the temple. Each course of priests performed their duties for eight days. They all joined together to do all the necessary sacrificial work of the of the uh, temple on the Sabbath. About 50 individual priests were engaged in temple work every day. You know, there's so much sacrificing going on and so much cleansing and this and that, that every day it took 50 priests to do all that work. It was, that was a very, it was a big temple, by the way. The duty of each priest was determined by the lot that he picked. And we read about that. What verse was that? It said something about a lot. If somebody finds it, just shout it out to me because they don't want to look. But it was the, the do, his duty when he went to serve for his week, twice a week, what verse? Nine. Okay, and verse nine talks about the lot. That, that duty that he would perform was determined by a lot. And I don't know exactly what they... It was kind of like throwing a dice, you know, not exactly, but they would toss this thing and that would tell them what their job was to be for that week. And they would go two weeks out of the year. Now the offering of incense, here's the, if you forget everything else I just said, remember this one. The offering of incense 
was considered the highest duty of all other than what the high priest did. Now, these are regular priests, okay? The high priest on the Day of Atonement would actually go in the Holy of Holies that was hidden behind this curtain. In this picture, they've drawn the curtain back so you can look into the Holy of Holies, okay? But other than that job, the, other, the second highest job that an ordinary priest could ever perform was the offering of incense. And he could only do that job once in a lifetime. That was his job only one time in his whole life. Now, what we're told here is that the lot, you know, whatever they did when they threw out that lot thing, for the offering of incense, um, fell to Zacharias at this time that we read about. <clears throat> so this, you see, was his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but into the holy place, which was right before that thick veil curtain, where you see this priest standing here. And he was allowed, to, the, his duty at this time was to throw incense on this, um, it's called a golden altar, which was directly in front of the holy veil, which hid the holy of holies. So you see, this was a very special day in Zacharias's life. This was his what? He, he was an old man, and he had never gotten a lot before in his life to do this duty. And now it came to him. And so um, you see how special it is then when you find that not only on this day did he have this special duty to perform, but this is the day that heaven decided to speak after 400 years of silence and tells Zacharias that he would give birth to the herald, the one who would come in the spirit of Elijah. He would give birth to the forerunner of the Messiah. I mean, that had to just really, really be exciting. So, then the last thing we're going to look about at concerning that day and time is the silence of Zacharias. We just talked about the... Um, oh, no, I didn't do the sign of separation, have I? Oops, quick, quick, quick. Okay, sign of separation. Um... Okay, so Gabriel appears to him at a time when there was a degenerate king on the throne, there was a debased temple, there was a defiled priesthood, and there was a deadened people. By the way, I didn't talk about that. We'll skip over that. But the people of Israel at that time were really basically spiritually dead except for a few godly people, a remnant like Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and Anna and Simeon. God always has his remnant. But most of the people were just going through the motions of religion. They didn't have the reality in their heart. So Zacharias, you see, is in front of the golden altar, and he's about to, and he's throwing the incense on there, and all of a sudden he looks over, and there is Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, standing there. And that, you know, it's amazing the man didn't have a heart attack, right? And that shocked him. And it, it says, obviously, he was fearful because the first thing Gabriel said to him is, Fear not. Zacharias for thy prayer is heard. Had Zacharias been praying for a child? I don't know. Maybe he had for years and years. Maybe he had given up. But maybe also he was praying for the Savior to come, the Messiah to come. But whatever, it says your prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Now I told you John means grace of God. That's a perfect name for the forerunner of the one being sent to Israel because of the grace of God. The Lord Jesus Christ was preparing to step out of timeless bliss out there in perfect eternity past in order to enter into this human realm of sin and suffering in order to conquer sin and death on our behalf. And the reason for that is because of what? 
the grace of God. And for Zacharias and Elizabeth, the long-awaited joy of finally holding their own son in their arms was about to be theirs. How? Again, because of the grace of God. So John, the grace of God is a perfect name for the herald of the Messiah. Okay, the sign of separation. Gabriel told Zacharias that his son's position would be as a Nazarite. Now, very quickly, I'm just going to tell you that a Nazarite... Um, there was only three pe people in the Bible that ever took lifetime Nazarite vows, vows to be a Nazarite. And they were, who remembers? Sam, there you go. Samson was one of them. John the Baptist was another one. Now, Samson broke his when he touched a dead carcass. He also did some other bad things. But uh, the third one was um, Samuel, the prophet Samuel. They took a lifetime Nazarite vow. There were three conditions to be a Nazarite. Um, that was you weren't to cut your hair ever in your whole life. You were never to drink strong drink, and you were never to touch anything dead. Even as it went as far to say as, you know, if your father fell over dead in your lap, you had to go through a cleansing period or something. That was the only condition, you know, if you could hold something dead. But uh, they, So they couldn't touch anything dead. They couldn't drink strong drink, and they could never cut their, cut their hair. <clears throat> this served as a, a sign of separation. So John the Baptist was to be separate. From the world, and he he was he was really different. I'll tell you, he he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, Elijah, and uh, he was responsible for spiritually preparing many Jews for the coming of the Messiah. And boy, he did he took his job seriously. And we're going to enjoy looking at this man when we talk about John the Baptist. He was really he was an Old Testament kind of a prophet. <clears throat> He also would turn hearts of the fathers to the children, and he would turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and he would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, the last thing, we'll close with this. Let's look at the silence of Zacharias. Zacharias could not possibly have really understood the enormous significance of the announcement that had been made to him. I'm sure he was just absolutely overwhelmed. Luke tells us that he even had trouble believing that his wife was going to conceive a child. Um, you know, much less understand that his son was going to be the herald of the Messiah. I think, you know, he was really focused on Elizabeth. You know, do you know how old she is? <laughs> and so he expressed his doubt by asking Gabriel how he could know that this was really going to be. In essence, what he was asking was, for, he was asking for a sign. And that's not good. We'll see that Jesus said, you know, an evil and adulterous generation asks for signs. We should just, in faith, believe God's word, right? It's the unbelievers that ask for signs. So this was naughty. This was not good that Zechariah asked for a sign. But he got one. And what was the sign that he got? He was stricken dumb. <laughs> Is that right? He couldn't speak. And he didn't speak until John was eight days old, and then he got his voice. Now, Elizabeth, who besides being barren, was, all, was also beyond ch childbearing years, did, of course, it tells us, she did become pregnant because God always does keep his word. However, I want to point out one difference between the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although John the Baptist had a miraculous conception because of the fact that she had been beyond the years of bearing a child. She was postmenopausal, and she had even been barren. 
God had to reach down and he had to rejuvenate her body, you know, and put her back in the menstrual cycle and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, so he, it was a miraculous conception because a woman her age should not have had a child normally. Yet, it was not a supernatural conception because he was not born supernaturally. He was born from a natural mother and a natural father and their, their natural union. You know, the, the regular way that men and women have children, okay? Whereas the Lord Jesus Christ was born supernaturally. He had a physical mother, but he did not have a physical father, and there was no union with the, well, whatever. There was a passing over, but there was no physical union, okay? There was a spiritual union. But anyway, John the Baptist was not born of a virgin. That's what I'm trying to say. So his birth can't even begin to compare with the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. His birth was more like the birth of uh, Isaac and the birth of um, Jacob and Esau. You know, the, the mothers were barren, but God touched, touched their bodies and made them so they could conceive. Well, in conclusion... We return to Gabriel's words in verse 17. If you look at verse 17 of Luke 1, it's significant to note that they were a quote from the very last verse in the Old Testament. And that's found in Malachi 4, 6. The Old Testament ends with that verse. It says, And he, speaking of the predecessor to the Messiah, in other words, John the Baptist, shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. For 400 years, God had been silent. But when that silence was at last broken, God, through the angel Gabriel, told Zacharias that he would have a son who would turn many to the Lord. This son, as I said, would come in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons and the sons to the father. When God the Holy, what God the Holy Spirit was so beautifully doing was indicating that the heavenly clock, you see, which had stopped with Malachi 400 years earlier, the heavenly clock was about to begin to tick again, right exactly where it had left off 400 years earlier. Because the Old Testament had closed with that same verse that we now hear Gabriel speaking to John the Baptist's father. So you see, the Old Testament and the New Testament definitely belong together. The one is the conclusion of the other. The four Gospels were written are a written continuation of all that had been prepared and predicted and foreshadowed previously. So the Old Testament was simply God's preparation, you see, for the New Testament. And of course, the Old Testament was God's preparation for the good news of salvation through his son the lord jesus christ who was about to be born and about to shake the earth as it had never been shaken before and never has been shaken since so next week we're going to look at the two exciting announcements made to the lord's parents joseph his stepfather and then mary his his physical mother okay thank you for your patience let's close in a quick word of prayer father thank you for the patience of your people thank you for all that you taught us i pray that we can take all this assimilate it and somehow or another lord may your holy spirit apply it to our own lives may we be like zacharias and elizabeth may we be godly women in a dark and a degenerate day lord i ask that you go with each woman put a hedge of protection around her and bring us all back safely next week for we pray in christ's name amen